Is anybody here in Kahiri playing? No. <laughs> Unless he's playing the sound of silence. It's the feminine. <laughs> I'm also hearing a lot of silence, and I thought that's a new genre of music. <laughs> All right. What were you waiting for? I was waiting for the countdown, you said. It was visual, and then it's Kravemer, and then you start playing. <laughs> I, okay, I'm sorry. My bad. Let's go. This is See Africa, Breathe Africa, a weekly podcast made to bring Uganda, Rwanda, and the Democratic Republic of Congo closer to you. It's moderated by a travel consultant and cultural tourism expert, Miha Logar in Rwanda, and an Afrofusion musician, Joe Kahiri in Uganda. See Africa, breathe Africa. gentlemen we begin this episode of see africa breathe africa with a song from the region of kabale a traditional bachiga folk song tendeko um, and tendeko is all about a time when there was a long distance trade and sometimes mother would be gone for many days going to the markets going to trade and when she comes back the children in the village would be dancing and singing this little rhyme called Tendeko. Tendeko mawe, tendeki wunu, katikavisi, kagomonyaja, and so on and so forth. I'm particularly excited about this episode because we are going to be sharing with you our stories as the people from the Gorilla Highlands region. And there's a very fascinating history, very fascinating background. And um, it is all sparked off by a trip that Miha, you did. Yeah, sure. Over the weekend, I went to Nyanza in the south of Rwanda. And for the first time after all these years in the country, actually visited the King's Palace Museum. It's embarrassing because I have big interest in culture, traditions, history, and other stuff otherwise. But it was the last gray spot on the Rwandan map for me and wow I was impressed the thing basically has two parts they have recreated an old traditional king's palace next to the more colonial looking last palace that he used before Rwanda became an independent republic well honestly it just made me ask myself why aren't these things promoted as much as mountain gorillas are and i've shared some of the images with you i think you're going to put them into the blog post you're preparing tell us something about that tell us about that question of why is africa's history not really talked about enough 
Um, yeah, I'll just, I'll just, so yeah, so the reason I said um, it's such a subject of interest for me is because this is something we've talked about a lot. I mean, it's obvious Africa had a lot of grand history, civilizations and empires that way before colonialism, but I think because most of our history is recorded in the colonial languages um, and told by the colonialists, uh, from a colonialist perspective, most of the African history literature that you find, um, you will not, you, you definitely don't get a lot, you don't get much of the story before colonialism. Also, that you'll find a lot of the sites um, who are tampered with. Um, I think rather deliberately in, in a way to deny the existence of anything organized and therefore justify the term civilization of Africa. Um, I mean, this is something that I would really love to get into and talk about, but I will just say for the benefit of the people who listen to this and who get to listen, that you will need to check the blog post that I write because I will I'll, you, I, well, first of all, um, Miha has shared some really lovely pictures, but also there will be a lot more information about African civilizations and that sort of thing. I think that what I would really want to get into tonight is the stories that are there that probably somebody could get in touch with when they come into the Gorilla Highlands region. Um, you know, things that you could find, things that you could see, things that you could hear about and hear people talk about, you know, that have a bearing on this on this actual region. I find it quite interesting, you know, that you and I are yeah. basically using the language of your colonizers to communicate. I mean, it's handy. It's really good that uh, English has prevailed, making our life easier. Yeah. But at the end of the day, we are both sacrificing a, a bit of our cultural, not just knowledge, but also immersion. Because I should be like much more forced to speak local languages. And after 20 years in Eastern and Central Africa, I still do not speak any of the local languages because English can help me out of any situation. It's right. ridiculous, but that's the way it is. Well, to be fair, you'd need to learn a ridiculous amount of local languages just to get through the regions that you've been in. The world has changed, and it's good to acknowledge that, but I think also there are things that are still there that can be observed that are just intriguing, and for somebody who's curious about knowledge, when you come to this area, even when you're speaking to people in English, there's still like stories and just a lot of discoveries to make. What would you hear propose to a traveler who is coming to our region as the absolute must in terms of the culture slash traditional highlights? I think this is a very fascinating region because of the history. Even though we have borders between us, the truth is that we... So, for example, I'm I'm Amchiga, who are the people who settled in the Kabale area, um, but then very much related with the Hutus who are, you know, in Rwanda and Burundi and in Congo. And it was all one region. And then the Tusis who are now in, in Rwanda, very much related with the Bahima in Ankole, you know. In Uganda? 
Ankola in Uganda, yes. It's a region that has been split up by the borders that form the countries, <clears throat> but then you find that the peoples are kind of the same. I think that you can't talk about culture without talking about music. And I think that one of the things that you must, must, must do when you come into the Gorilla Highlands region is just to experience the am- immense amount of variety and beauty of music that there is in this region. Um, in Chigezi, we play Enanga. It's played in Ankole, it's played in Rwanda. And um, I'm not sure about Congo, but Enanga is like a Zitha. Now, the fascinating thing is that we all play it differently. So in Ankole, when you come, when you go there, they have a, they have like a hollowed out calabash or sometimes these days they use like a basin to make like a sound box. So it's more boomy and, and they use it differently than we do. Among the Bachiga, it's played as a melodic instrument and as a percussive instrument. Um, so somebody will play like a full dance just with Enanga. When you go over into Rwanda, it has more strings. So the one in for the Bachiga has like, it's a, it's a five string instrument. When you cross over into Rwanda, it's I think nine strings or something. It's, it has way more strings. It's way more melodic. And the way they sing, they have like this yodeling style of music. When you go to Congo, Congo is like music land, you know. And so there's all these varieties of music and very fascinating dances. I mean, when you see the Bachiga dancing, it's all about the energy, energy, stamp the ground. The, the Banyarwanda, when they jump almost head height, um, when they're dancing, they have their worried dances and flamboyant, flamboyant costumes. They are much more interested in the elegance than the Bachiga who are trying to flatten their land, right? <laughs> no, Bachiga, hey, let's not get this wrong. Bachiga are very energetic, but there is a lot of elegance in that energy, okay? Defend that quote a little bit. But yes, <laughs> you are right. If you, if you don't hear like a stampede, if the ground doesn't shake when a Bachiga is dancing, then that dance will not be very highly appreciated. It's it's a it's the heart of a chichiga dance that energy jumping, uh, I mean stamping the ground more than jumping. So the Kinyarwanda the Kinyarwanda dance has a lot more arm movements and that sort of thing. Um, I'll tell you, Miha. They say that the region you come from determines what part of your body you dance most with. And so as you get closer to the equator, you'll find that people dance with their waist a lot more. And as you get further away from the equator, you find that people dance more with their legs. I feel obliged to say a word about the people that I am personally so close to and kind of uh, connected with. And that is the Batwa. Like we kind of Uh skipped the whole Batwa story, the original inhabitants of these lands before all these Bantus came from Western Africa and these hunters and gatherers in the forest, I would say these should actually come first for a responsible tourist because you're basically directly helping a culture survive through your interest in what they are doing. And uh, if I am to say something, in terms of what to do in our region, in addition to the fantastic music and dances, it is go visit the Batwa Pygmies, but do it in an organization that does it responsibly. Absolutely. It's not just to help their culture, the Batwa music, the Batwa dancing, and then they have the Iron Smiths 
who who um you can still see to this day doing their their handiwork they have like a very traditional way of like getting the iron from the ground smelting it making different things and implements and what and to take it back to where we started the batwa were also the famous entertainers at king's courts in rwanda like that was their role basically playing for the kings and doing pottery would be like their most known occupations i'm now going to ask the voice to add something a little bit in more detail and with more style and share with you a cultural story at the turn of the 20th century there lived a fierce lady called muhumza a spiritual medium and a war leader her story connects the rwandan kingdom with the freedom-loving peoples of present uganda and pre-colonial history with colonization King Rwabujiri of Rwanda died in 1895 and a bitter succession dispute followed. Muhumuza, who may or may not have been Rwabujiri's mistress or wife, wanted the throne for her son. She spearheaded a coalition of rebels that split Rwanda into the north, seeking independence, and the royal south. Muhumuza's spear-wielding warriors were at first successful in their battles, but the arrival of German invaders completely changed the dynamics. With their guns and other technology, they ruthlessly suppressed all resistance. To boost her credentials, Muhumuza proclaimed that she is a personification of Nyabinji, a traditional deity. She instructed her followers to search for the sacred drum, Kalinga, and claimed that upon finding it, her son would become king, and all her followers would receive cows from the underworld. She predicted that bullets would turn to water, but uh, history wasn't quite on her side. The British arrived as well, and even though she did not challenge them directly, she was seen as a threat. In 1911, they launched a surprise attack close to today's Kabale and captured her slightly wounded. This is how the British district commissioner described her. By dint of years of training, she had acquired a high falsetto voice and professes the inability to walk normally. Her method of position being on tiptoe, in a crouching position with the aid of two sticks. The chiefs, with scarcely an exception, trembled whenever her look was directed towards them. She made most notable efforts to exercise some form of hypnotism over me. Muhumuza's arrest caused complications because the area had not yet been formally incorporated into the Uganda Protectorate. They deported her to Kampala with four servants and some cows. She was not a prisoner, however, and by 1931, she had 15 courtiers and servants and at least 70 cows. She was living the comfortable life of an exiled royal and had many admirers and visitors whom she reportedly initiated into Nyapinji's rituals. She passed away around 1944. In this episode, Miha and Joe enjoy the company of Inaki Chirisa, a Ugandan culture and history enthusiast, John Lee, the voice of Santa Barbara in his informal capacity, Joshua Lulyonza, a Germany-based economist of Rwandan and Ugandan heritage, and Ramadan Sindigaya, a Rwandan top chef. Let's listen to our conversation. I would like to ask Enoch if you, you would know some places that are worth visiting for somebody who is interested in culture and history, either a scholar or a tourist. I saw John Lee seem to have a question, so maybe he should go first while I get myself set. 
Okay, I, I do have a question about what is taught in schools about culture. We in the Western world we learn very little about African history and culture. What do they teach in Uganda and Rwanda about their own cultural history? As others warm up to actually answer this question properly, I just want to add because you are talking to us from America, it is really interesting how they don't learn anything or almost anything about Native Americans and tribal societies around the world because the story is always we've, we've been modernized and this is where we are now. I should leave those who actually went through these education systems to tell us more. You know, um, from when I was in school, studying history in school, I, I really feel like even African history in African classes is taught from a very European perspective. So the spiritual movements were looked at as barbaric, you know, and then the, the, the European colonizers were looked at as the saviors and the, the civilizers. And a lot of the, what I would have called the African achievements are very minimalized and sidelined. You hardly, so a lot of the history that I found that balanced that out, I found out, I, I learned as a result of studying after school as as opposed to studying in school. And then we, yeah, we do have them, Bantu migrations and that sort of thing. We learn about uh, kingdoms, uh, empires, Songhai Empire, Mali Empire, and all those, some of them. Uh, there are some that we don't ever hear about. For example, I never heard about the Great Zimbabwe or Kush and Meroe. Like, especially the grander side of things, we never really had, we never really studied too much about it. The surprising thing is we learn a great deal of um, European history, you know, French Revolution, Renaissance, blah, blah, blah. To be honest, in school, I wasn't a very good history student. My interest in history started after school. As an a student, maybe I should add, add something to that. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> I, I think you've done justice talking about how um, history is really represented in Uganda. But um, just to add a highlight, I would say that yes, uh, from from an elementary age to um, to high school, we are learning history. So during elementary, for example, for me. Um, I was in school where I learned the history of, of um, Uganda, the history of Buganda and the kingdoms surrounding and where the first man came from, you know, all this history. Um, so I want to give credit there. But I also agree that um, as you advance, um, also in high school, in high school, uh, we have to choose between uh, which history we want to, to, to major in. We want to study um, um, South African history. Are we, uh, are we, or would you like to study East African history or West African history? So we had the liberty to choose, um, to, to choose which history we would like to, you know, we are interested in. Um, all I can really say is, um, yes, we, we're using an education system from the UK. So the syllabus is from the UK, by and large. There have been attempts to try and teach us about our history. But because of the system that we work with, our history is taught to us. We have to use textbooks, and there's not that many textbooks that are actually documenting our history from our perspective. I think also because culturally, 
we are a very oral tradition. So I remember growing up in primary school, we would have, we had a primary school where they would give us a session for the really young kids, where an older lady like a grandmother would come and sit with the kids and tell them stories of their heritage. But the moment you went into what they considered serious education and you started doing history as a subject, you would be learning about British history, European history. And when a few people started agitating for us to start learning about our own history, we were reading it from textbooks that were written by the British. A very classic example for me is I discovered, I'm in my late 30s, and I discovered maybe seven years ago what tribe I was actually from. Uh, all along, I thought I was a Munyankole, and I found out I'm a Mokororo, and I'd never even heard of the tribe and had no idea what that was. And I didn't think much of it till one time I was stuck at home with nothing better to do and decided to try to do some research. And I didn't leave the house for three days because I was so fascinated by the very little information I could find. So we are coming at it from a disadvantage. It's sort of our generation scrambling to get as much information as we can from people much older than us before they pass on because none of it was actually documented. And so I would say for anyone that's coming to visit the region, yes, there are places you can visit, Kasubi tombs, uh, Buganda as a culture started trying really hard to preserve as much of its culture as possible. But in spite of all of that, if language wasn't so much of a barrier, the best place to get immersed in the culture is to sit down with some of those people and actually hear the stories. The last I checked in Uganda alone, we have about 41 distinct languages. That seemed normal growing up till I traveled. I think I was in the UK and people were shocked that I spoke six languages. And I didn't realize that was astounding because everyone I knew spoke at least four. We didn't think much of it, it was just part of growing up. I was talking with Kahiri a bit earlier about a place in Masaka here in Uganda called Bigobiamogeni, which means, uh, I think it translates to the reeds of the visitors, which was a city that had been built allegedly by Bachwezi, who were this mysterious group of people who appeared out of nowhere and lived here for thousands of years and then disappeared overnight in a flood. But they built this vast city that was about a square mile or two large and the ruins, the foundational ruins still exist. Of course, people are growing potatoes over them because it's not a big deal. They have the stories. But I know the government's been trying to come in and preserve some of them, but the stories are fascinating, even though what you might visually see might not be that awe-inspiring like Stonehenge or something. Well, I just hope that one day that site is going to get a proper presentation because it's sad that really, as you said, agriculture is being done over it. Okay, very, very sad. Absolutely. Can I, can I ask Rama to add the Rwandan perspective? Rwandans being a proud nation, how much do you talk about your history, culture, traditions at school? The way our education was built on the uh, European history, and uh, that's uh, unfortunately, uh, we were not learning about our history, but now nowadays uh, students are 
learning the history of Africa and our region also. Story I know about my country, the only story I've been taught with my my grandma or my grandfather. <laughs> I am shocked because I was hoping that at least Rwanda <laughs> was doing better. Thank you so much, Rama. And is everybody okay with that? If something is still burning in you, please share. May I ask uh, Kahiri one question? If he knows where exactly Nyabingi was born? Maybe very briefly, my great-grandmother was also a Nyabingi priestess. And as far as I know is that Nyabinji is a, a spiritual being, a god. And also because the Bachiga were living in Rwanda before the Tutsis came and made the place unbearable for us. <laughs> and, then, and then they moved. So they, 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 they ran away from Rwanda into Kigezi. So we, we have a shared history, common ancestry. And so, yeah, so the Nyabinji is, was the, the overruling spirituality in the area of you know Chigezi, Rwanda and I think bits of Congo as well. Is that a man already? A lady for sure. It, no, no, no. <laughs> Miha. Mm-hmm. Miha was, not a, was not a lady. Continue. I'm going to challenge you. So the common, the common misconception and why a lot of people believe that Nyabinji was a woman is because his servants were all female. But his servants were all female because they were his wives. So the priestesses were wives of Nyabinji. Um, and so they were not supposed to work. They were not supposed to get married. Um, they were just supposed to live for Nyabinji. And that's why, so you hear about Muhumza, you hear about uh, Maria Chamikazi. I can't remember the others of them. But w- when you hear about Nyabinji, all the people who were representing Nabinji were female, but that's because they were his wives, so to speak. Okay, uh, definitely I cannot compare to you as far as research and cultural knowledge is concerned. I just want to say that based on what I've read, Nabinji is always presented as a female energy as something that is a little bit different to the typical masculine god. I've had a pretty animated argument with, with, uh, with somebody who, who had fallen in love with the, with the narrative of a female energy and uh, you know the female god. When you get down to the people who know the traditions, you will I mean if you go far enough into the traditions, you will find that they knew that Nyabinji was a male spirit or had a male energy anyway. I just wanted to put a disclaimer that um, when you disc- when you talk about spirits, as far as I know, spirits do not have a gender. So I don't know why um, you, would, you would say, ah, it was a male spirit or female spirit. As far as I know, spirits have no gender. Anyway. What if it was lesbian marriage to that <laughs> to that Nyabinji? But anyways, no, let's, let's go to Joshua. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> I'm really holding my tongue here. I'm like really biting my tongue here. I will not say a word. Thank you. Thank you. I'm going to use this opportunity for a public service announcement. The gentleman who is the source of 
most of my knowledge about Nyabinji and where my perception of Nyabinji as uh, a goddess of fertility comes from is missing. He's called Ian Cantwell. He was behind so much of our historical research and it just happened so that today his family reached out to me saying that they have not heard from him since July. I haven't heard from him since April. So if anybody hears this in our podcast and know the whereabouts of Ian Cantwell, who was reportedly sick when when he last time contacted his family, please get in touch. We are looking for Ian Cantwell, last seen in Tanzania. You'll hear the stories you've never heard You'll hear of distant kingdoms and lands You'll find out things you never knew You'll be inspired for all time When you see Africa and breathe Africa See Africa, yeah, yeah, la 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 la. See Africa, breathe Africa. See Africa, yeah.